So um, I do have to say, um, uh, just real briefly, um, I'm hesitant because I know that Ben is, Ben is like more than anything, you know, would just be like, don't, don't be too sad. Don't everybody be sad because he's such a happy guy. But, um, but I will say when I first, um, uh, Ben became a good friend in a short amount of time. And, um, when I first met him, he was very nice to me. Um, but all that meant was that he didn't know me very well because, um, Ben, it turned out was like me in that, um, he's a very sarcastic person. And I think God uh, taught me through that friendship uh, how painful that can be. Because um, once we became friends, he would walk by me on Sunday mornings in the lobby. I always walk by very fast, and he'd have a way of saying something just enough, the right way, that would completely disarm me and make me insecure and make me question everything about myself right before I get up and give a sermon. And he seemed to take such joy in doing this. And um, the first, uh, that, like the first Sunday, he just walked by me and did that and said, oh, well, it's, it would have been nice if you could have, oh, couldn't tuck your shirt in for us this week, huh? And I would keep walking and I would, I, 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 I didn't know it was that bad. I actually, this is, the ni- this is the nicest I've looked all week, you know? Gosh, what am I doing, you know? Um, you know, the week, uh, the week after his father-in-law came, who was a retired pastor who had gone to, I believe, Princeton, and um, he said, uh, you know, as I walked by, father-in-law's here, went to Princeton, used to be a pastor, so just keep that in mind, you know, <laughs> hoping for your A game, is what he said. Oh, oh goodness, and uh, if you want to talk about a hard person to read, it's any person that you're worried about in a congregation. You're like, oh, oh he's, what does that look? What does this mean? Is this the thinking? The agree? You know, it turned out he was a very nice guy. Um, but um, I just really appreciated that. Um, I have appreciated that about Ben and the fact that he um, is that kind of person because um, I also felt like we could connect on a level that was hard to connect with other people. Um, and... Um, it will definitely be missed because of that. But I think more than uh, almost anything else, Ben has brought people joy who have known him for even a short amount of time. And so he will be missed. But, um, you know, as I began to prepare the message for, um, for this morning, um, we were initially going to try to preach through one chapter a week in 1 Samuel because we wanted to uh, do justice to the to the, to the entire book, but we also wanted to be able to go through it uh, within a period of time that we could still retain these things that we're learning and hearing and building on each other. And so sometimes that means you have to go through it even quicker than you think, uh, you know, that it feels quick at times. And so I actually had, for the most part, prepared um, a message on uh, this idea of these two different types of priests that we, that we read about in chapter 2 of uh, of 1 Samuel, but um, it wasn't until early uh, yesterday evening that um, as my wife and I were talking and as I was thinking more about it, it felt like, you know, why am I passing up Hannah's prayer? Uh, why am I passing up Hannah's prayer? Um, because, you know, I know that we had talked about Hannah quite a bit last week, and we want to kind of talk a lot about what we're doing in 1 Samuel, but all of this is a very exciting and interesting and hilarious introduction, of course, to um, basically um, a, a message this morning on this very prayer, and very clearly just sensing from God 
that this is uh, what we need to talk about this morning. It's what we talk about because it's here in 1 Samuel and because it's important as we work through the narrative, what it is that God is telling us throughout his word, that we see all of the parts of it. And more than anything, it was evident, looking back again, that, um, that we cannot miss this part. Because as we talked about last week, Hannah is a woman who was at an incredibly low point. She was vulnerable. She was in despair And she was feeling as low as a person could feel. And it was from that place that God came to her and granted her this thing that she so desired. And so the the response to that, the follow-up to that, is this amazing prayer that tells us what we need to know about the God who ultimately is the king of his people, which is who we are studying. And to not start by talking about who that God is that we see through this prayer of this woman, uh, we don't start exactly on the right foot. A.W. Tozer, the theologian, famously said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is such a true statement. It's also the first line of one of his books, and so uh, it's an easy book to get a great quote from. You just read that first line and go, I don't know that I could read, I need to read beyond this because this says so much to me about, uh, this gives me so much to think about right here. What comes to a person's mind when they think about God is the most important thing about us. And if a person thinks about God and what comes to mind is not much, That, unfortunately, equally is the most important thing about that person. I was at the park with my kids a few weeks ago, and um, we, uh, as parks are opening up and kids are playing more, um, I'm like, I'm, I'm going back into these interactions that have gone so long without having. And this uh, little girl was uh, on a swing set with my daughter. And uh, if you know my daughter, you know that means that they were on a swing uh, together. Um, You know, very quickly, uh, they were just on a swing together. And uh, the girl, and I was, her mom was, I'm trying to find her mom, like, okay, is this okay? But um, the, as, as they're swinging, my daughter says something, and I don't know how in the world this came up, but she said, uh, I promise you, this is not something that I tell my kids just say every time you meet anybody, but she said, my dad's um, a pastor at a church. And, uh, and the girl says, um, not that that's like a bad thing to say, but you know what I'm saying, right? I'm, I'm not saying you have to lead with that every time, guys. And, her, and this, this girl that, that hears this from her, she says, oh, pastor, she says, so are you guys religious? Uh, the six-year-old girl said to my daughter, so are you guys religious? And my daughter had like no idea what she was talking about. And I start running through my mind going, oh, what is the best way to answer this question? You know, the, how do I respond to this question? Are you religious? You know, uh, because when you, when you think about that, when you, when you hear even that someone uh, is a person who is a pastor, who attends a church, who is a believer, then so many hear that and simply think, oh, that sounds like a person who's religious. Is it possible that people can believe in God, can know a lot about God, and yet that not be a good thing? Well, this is one of the things that we encounter in the Bible all the time. This very hard truth that 
to be simply a religious person is not the same as being a person who knows God in the way that they should know God. We confront this idea that you can know a lot about God. You can grow up within the family of God. You can come from generations of those who have known about God, and you could be uh, culturally raised in an environment in which God is one of the most normal parts of your life and your day, and yet what you know about God maybe doesn't say something good about you because that may simply describe a person who is religious for, for so many people that I talk with. In fact, it is a, one of the most common sentiments in, in America, absolutely, that the, the well-balanced life is a life of, uh, of compartments, a life where we have an area for everything and they all have their own place. I often have people encouraging and reminding me that as long as I uh, keep God within his place in their life, then we'll be good. Because that's a comfortable thing, because that's a religious person. What Hannah believes about God comes out in this prayer, and what we hear and what we read, what Matt just read and what we prayed through, tells us the most important things that we can know about the God that 1 Samuel will tell us about, the God who will ultimately be a king to his people in a way that no man, no person could ever be. We don't want to be in the place that Hannah was in when she prayed this prayer. We don't want to experience the desperation, the sadness, the emptiness, the despair that she herself has felt. And this was what Matt said last week again and again, that as much as we don't want to be in that place, we all know what it is to be in that place. And it is, there is a reason that the person telling us about who God is, is a person who is in that place when he shows up. It is not a mighty person who is made mightier or a strong person who is made stronger, but it is a weak person. God invades their life, and this is the best person possible to tell us about our God. The first thing that we read that she says about him is this. We read, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. Oh, I can't go backwards. There is no rock like our God. What she says here is so profound and so simple. She describes God not simply as powerful, not simply as a help, not simply as a part of a well-compartmented life. She describes God as her salvation. And this is who God is to his people. He is a God who is our salvation. Oh, I went back. Look at that. All right. 
My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God's people so often are describing God as their salvation, and that's how they celebrate him. That's how they worship him. God who, who saves his people from death, who saves his people from despair, the God who, who rescues his people out of Egypt, the God who uh, rescues his people even from the desert, the God who delivers the people's hand, enemies into their hands, the people, God who ultimately will rescue his people from their greatest enemy of all, which is themselves, because of the effect that sin has had in our hearts. He rescues us from the great enemy And he is our salvation against even ourselves. What Hannah says here about God, about our God, about the king that we will hear about is that he does not simply reward his followers. He rescues his followers. He is not a God who simply gives you something for what you've done, for the good that you have. And this is a fundamental a fundamentally different way of even understanding God at all from every other religion, every other uh, outlook, every other worldview that there is. Anthropologists would say that religion is man's attempt to control the uncontrollable in nature, to respond to the things that we cannot control. That in a time when there was no way that we had of predicting or ensuring that the seasons would be the way we want them, that the crops would grow the way we needed them, that our enemies would, uh, would fall at our hand, then God was a way, religion was a way that we could try to have some sort of control. And the way that we did it was by giving what we could to him and then hoping in an incredibly unpredictable world that somehow that appeased him. And so the understanding that most would have about God is that he rewards his followers. How do most from the outside understand faith as it, they, would, they would think it works on the inside? It is a place where people get together and they do good things. And if we live well and if we learn enough and if we believe right and if we act well, then he'll reward us. In fact, Christians talk a lot about love. It sounds like that's something they need, so he gives them love. That's great. Not just other stuff, but love. God loves me because I obey. And yet, what God tells us is simply obey because I love you as a child does for a father or a parent. He is a God who shows up for people who need salvation, which is all of us, and he rescues. Hannah is proclaiming and praising God because she is at a very, the lowest point that she can be, and he has rescued her. In fact, the way that she describes it doesn't sound like a woman who's been granted a child. It sounds like a, a, a general of an army that's just been in battle. The way that she's talking is a little dramatic, like we said last week. Even Eli the priest is like, whoa, calm down. Let's stop being so dramatic in church, okay? Let's just keep it toned down there a little bit. Because he himself is not used to encountering this kind of spiritual, what we would call, poverty. Jesus says in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the first statement that we hear, the first teaching and basis of the way the kingdom of heaven works, and it right out of the gate turns everything on its head in the way that we understand the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and yet, but, but isn't it true that, that, that we will be blessed if we are rich in spirit, if we have much to offer, if we have much to show for what we have done? We don't want a God who saves us. We want a God who congratulates us. We want a God who is proud of us. We want a God who says, well done. You did what other people couldn't. And so you can feel good about the life that you have lived. We want a God who will see an accomplished and impressive person and give them his blessing Because this is the kind of person that he wants with his name on their shirt. And yet what God instead is, is a God who rescues a people who are poor in spirit. When you literally translate out, poor in spirit is sort of a saying, it's a phrase. And when you translate it out most literally, it really says, happy are those who recognize their need for God. Blessed is, is happy. Happy are those who recognize their need for God. Do we believe this? When we think about God, is this what we think? Tozer says that one of the great paradoxes of the faith is to have attained something and yet still desire it. And this is, in many ways, the the challenge of, of the Christian faith to have a relationship with God and still desire more of that relationship with God. And yet this is exactly how relationships work. The closer we grow, the more we love, the more we trust, the more vulnerable and open we are. The more we recognize our need and our desire for that to continue. Seeing that you need someone to save you is not a bad thing, Jesus will say. Seeing that his people need him to be their savior is not a bad thing, says God. In fact, it is the only way that you can ever be free. Without recognizing how much we need God, we can never be happy, we can never be free, we can never be who we are intended to be. She goes on and she says, talk no more so very uh, talk no more. He says, she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more, so very proudly, yet not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. There is a contrast throughout Scripture of arrogance and pride, which is considered one of the characteristic traits of evil people, sinful people, wrong people. The enemy in the story is always the arrogant one. Why? Well, it's simple, because I think they're wrong, and they think they're right. And because they think they're right, but I know they're wrong, then they're really just arrogant. The way they're living, the way they're feeling, the way their life is built is not on something that is true and real. It is built on something that is not real. She, she encounters this God, and Hannah's response is that he is a God 
who does not just, in the cosmic way that we try to understand it, see all of the stuff going on. Because that's how we think of knowledge. That's how we think of the knowledge of God, that he's one who sees everything. He, he sees all the deeds and the things that people do. He hears all the impressive words that we say. And so how, again, do we try religiously to please him and to live for him? It's simple. We try to say the right things. We try to learn as much as we can. And we try to do the right things in hopes that all of this together will be something that will, again, impress our God. And yet, she says something here that is key about this God and about this king, which is what his knowledge is like. God is not just one who sees, he is one who knows. And there's a difference between seeing and knowing. This word uh, knowledge, if you translate it in the Hebrew, it literally means the knowledge it's talking about is entirely relational. It's a recognition of a person from across the room. It is not a knowledge of facts and information. It is not an awareness of things that have happened. It is entirely relational. And she says, this God is not a God who simply observes all the stuff you do and then is aware of it and gives you credit for it and scores for it which is also the way that any king would have to operate. Here are the laws, follow them, you're fine. Bow down when you're supposed to, say the things you're supposed to, that's all I care about, that you submit physically to me. But ours is a God who says, your hearts belong to me. He is a God who sees you from across the room and knows you. His knowledge of you is that of being in a place filled with impressive people and seeing one across the room and saying, there's someone I love, there's someone I know. And when that spark of recognition comes, we all know how that is, how that feels. It is a completely different relationship. Now, don't get me wrong, a love, a love for God can be the most inspiring and motivating thing in terms of the lives that we live and the actions that we live out. There is, there is, in so many ways, uh, nothing more inspiring than what a love for God can do in the life of a person. The way that a love for God can change a marriage, change a family, change a person's trajectory of their life completely out of love, like Hannah has, cause us to do some wonderful and great things. And yet, it is so easy to focus on doing wonderful and great things and miss the fact that ours is a God who says, what I see is what is inside of you. Jesus would come and he would talk about the heart, which had been talked about in the Old Testament. But could you imagine a, a king, a ruler, who can see to your heart, who knows how you feel when you praise them, who knows uh, where you're at when you bow down and offer your sacrifice to them? It isn't just physical at that point. It's about the whole of you. And just like we're uncomfortable with the idea of of a God who, uh, who's, who saves us because we want a God who's impressed with us. We're uncomfortable with the idea of someone who sees that much within us, who truly knows us. Because being vulnerable like that, being exposed like that, can be so very painful. I was reading a book once by a pastor, and 
in the beginning, I knew I liked this book because he was being very honest, and uh, the way I knew he was being honest was because in his introduction to the book, he described an argument he had with his wife, and he said, finally, I lost my patience, and I said, listen, 95% of the women at our church would kill to be married to someone like me. (laughs) And his wife said, well, I'm sorry, I'm the 5%. (laughs) And I thought it was funny because I was like, uh, man, I can't believe he just admitted to that in this book. But the, the, the truth of that statement is, is, is a person who knows someone so well that they know that all of the things that you say and all of the things that you do uh, when you're there with those people in that role can be just things that you say and do. And they may not know that, but I know you. I know your heart. I know what is truly in there. And I'm not impressed by those things if I don't think that they line up with who you are. And I think in that situation, maybe they didn't. God created man to be with him. That was not enough for man. Man wanted to be like him. And because man wanted to be like God, man sinned. And because of that sin, ever since then, God has been rescuing and saving and bringing people back to him so that we can be with him, but we are afraid of what that means much of the time. And so instead, ideas like self-sufficiency, self-confidence, self-honestly-centeredness are the best that we can offer, thinking that if we can have these things that our God will be pleased. But this is not the God that Hannah talks about. She speaks of one whose knowledge is so deep that it makes all of the understanding that other people think they have nothing but arrogance. And arrogance is literally this puffed-up nature. It's filled with, it's like a person or a thing that is filled with air, but there's nothing really to it. There's no substance to it. And if you've ever known someone who thought they were just so brilliant, then you've seen that before. She goes on, she says, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have come born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. This is where the math starts to not add up. Because it seems like this God that Hannah talks about is a God who... Uh, seems to somehow change and upset and uh, throw everything off kilter and balance in a way that makes it totally upside down almost. And this is exactly what our God does. Because he's not interested in our idea of strength and our idea of wisdom and our the things that we have to offer to simply impress him and so what that means is it means that, that what we see again and again is that ours is a God who uses the weak more than he uses the strong. 
He uses the foolish before using the wise. Why? Because those people recognize the emptiness that they have. The things that we have to offer aren't all that great compared to who God is and what he has. And as much as we want to be people who have so many things that we can be proud of and feel good about, the truth is that, that ours is a God of the, of the weak. He is not weak, but those who will experience him in the most profound ways are those who recognize their own weakness. And this is why it is through suffering that we see him the most clearly. It's when all of the things that, uh, that we put in between us and God fall away that we see exactly who he is and who we are in him. Our God's power turns the world upside down. This really is a very confusing concept and one that is so hard to actually accept. We, we accept it in, in, a, in the short term and then we move past it and think, I see how in that situation God did that. Or I see how that person in the Bible God used that way. Or I see this person, but, but, you know, what a, but, I'm sure, you know, but overall I'm still, that's not necessarily who I'm going to be. That's not who I need to be. I want God to use me. I want God to fill me. I want him to be a part of my life. But, you know, I, 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 I don't want to be like that. But what we see is the people that God uses are these people who are weak. And, uh, and the reason is because a person's perception of strength, their, their idea of themselves being inflated uh, gets in the way of their awareness of how holy and great their God is and the power that truly lies within him. There is nothing more foolish than flexing in front of God. And this happens in the Bible, and when it does, you sort of cringe. I'm going to step over here, away from the Pharaoh, because I don't think that he's going to like what happens. Thinking that our power is really power. Thinking that the things that might impress other people and uh, impress God. That is a right-side-up kingdom way of seeing things. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, what we talk about is a kingdom that is flipped, that is upside down. And in this kingdom, it is those who are weak that ultimately become strong. It is those who realize their depravity that ultimately become saved. It is those who realize their insufficiency that ultimately have what is truly sufficient. It is those who recognize exactly who they are in the face of their wonderful creator, who actually get to experience the face of their wonderful creator and the love that he has for them. Our God blesses and empowers the weak, and he seems to be the enemy of the strong. He seems to continually, again and again, show those who claim to be strong, who claim to be self-sufficient, that they are not. And so the question is, is that something that I want to be? Things look completely different if you believe in God the way Hannah believed in God. 
I mean, think about that. This, this statement, what we believe when we think about God, makes so much sense when you look at it this way. You might have a completely upside-down way of understanding this God that you're seeking to understand. Ideas like power and weakness are totally turned on their head. Ideas like abundance and poverty are completely turned on their heads. Ideas like wisdom and foolishness are completely turned on their heads when we understand who this God is and who we are in light of that thing. Hannah is praising God because she is not worthless for the first time in her life. The reason, that we, the reason that we don't want to be Hannah, the reason that we don't want to have to cry out in despair, the reason that we don't want to have to feel the loneliness that she did and the isolation that Matt talked about last week that feels like being alone in a dark room, the reason we don't want to feel those things is because we equate all of that stuff with worth. We think my worth and my value cannot be very much if I'm a person who is crying out in desperation, if I am a person who finds myself that alone. And I want to be worth something. In fact, this concept of worth and being worthy comes up again and again with Hannah and her interaction with Eli. And one of the crazy things that you see is she tells him, she says to him, we looked at last week, don't make the mistake of hearing me as a person with these worthless words. And the reason why that phrase matters a lot is because it's used in describing, we'll see next week, his sons and his own family, the priests of the nation of God are the ones that people consider to be the most worthy people, the most valuable people in the whole kingdom. And yet what we see is that they are not as worthwhile as they think. And instead, who is Hannah? The the woman who in a culture where everything is wrapped up in the number of children you have and your line continuing on and the honor that is brought with that a woman who is considered to be worthless in society. That is the person who is most worthy because they recognize their unworthiness. Meanwhile, the the priests, Eli's own sons, who he would want to to believe after raising them and and them doing this incredibly important job in this nation, have found themselves worthless before God in all of their efforts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Why would God want those from the dust, from the ash heap, to inherit a seat of honor? Why would he be a God who raises those up? Because this is what our God does when he saves us. He is a God who lifts his people up. He is a God who will lift you up. 
And the incredible thing about it is uh, the, 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 the extent that he will go in order to do that. I mean, you can break this down in all kinds of ways. How does he get beneath someone in order to lift them up? Coming to earth like Christ. Sacrificing and subjecting and serving. In order to be able to lift us up. That, that he's a God who sees the lowly and sees the humble and sees the meek and ultimately is a God who lifts up his people. This is something that we don't want to have to hear, and yet we constantly find ourselves in life needing to hear. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. We come together and we worship this morning, and we remember and we reflect on the fact that ours is a God who will lift us up. Ours is a God who has lifted us up. That is who he is. And so in our meekness and our suffering, God lifts us up. Shea family, God lifts you up. In your suffering, even if it doesn't feel like he does, he meets you in the place in which you're at. Even, regardless of what you bring to him in that place, ours is a God who says, I, I am a God who will lift you up. I am the God who will lift you up. He lifts up. Ben, he has lifted up Rebecca. He will lift up their children and their family. He lifts up this church, and we surround one another and, and, and encourage each other with those words because each and every one of us need this. Not in the same way, not at the same time, but we're here together, not as a group of people who have done such a great job proving how great we are, and so now we can celebrate that. But we are a group of people who, if there is anything that binds us together and connects us together, it is the gospel which says that in all of our differences, that span so many different things, that we are lifted up by the same God. Amen? And he can do all of these things, she says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What makes this God so great? How can he do these things? How can he define what is strong and what is weak? How can he define what is knowledge and what is foolishness? How can he really work this way? Because he is the creator of all. Our God is the only one who can be the king. Our God is the only one who can be who he claims to be because he has created all of us. When the Bible describes what it means to be someone who uh, acknowledges their place before God, it means seeing yourself as a vessel, as a thing that was created by God and uh, the more that we recognize that that is what we are, the more he can fill us. The more valuable we become, the clearer our understanding gets. I think that Hannah's biggest fear truly was being worthless. 
And I think this is something that is a pretty scary idea to all of us. We all have our own ways that we've constructed sort of what it looks like to be worthwhile, to have a life of value, to matter, to be significant. And as those things are constantly shaken and tested, and as we learn more about what is real and what is true, what we come to see is this incredibly disorienting truth about the way reality really works. And it is this, that the harder that we try to make ourselves worthwhile, the less worthwhile we become. And that the more we recognize our need for a savior, our need for a king, the more we are in a place where we are found worthy of the thing that he offers us, which is everything. Ours is the God who, uh, the God that Hannah talks about in this prayer, the God that she proclaims is the God that we worship. It is the God that we read about in First and Second Samuel. It's the God that as we'll look through the rest of this book, we will see him again and again and again, rescue and redeem his people and show them who he is and then allow them to learn the hard way often what it looks like to try to pursue something else, try to pursue someone else. But ours is a God who saves us. And for some of us, that's a scary idea for all of us because we don't want to have to be saved. But we need his salvation. And there are some here this morning who like the idea of God, who like the compartment of God, who like the place of God in your life, along with all the other things, you know, physical well-being, financial well-being, you know, a healthy family, spiritual life, that goes in there too. But if that is your understanding of God, if that is the way that you pursue God, you know, hey, we got a new year going. I just got to figure out how all these things are working, and I got to get them all proportioned right. If that is your understanding of God, if that is your understanding of who he is, then that is religion, and that will lead you nowhere. All that you can do the first thing that you must do, the most urgent thing that you must do is recognize your need for a savior and to let him transform everything in your life as a result of that. Let's pray. Father, twenty twenty, as we have said, is a year that we want to put in the past and not think about again because we are ready to move on and to get out of a low place. And yet we find ourselves continually brought back to being reminded that we cannot try to get away from the difficulty and the pain of life so that we can forget it. So that we can go back to being self-sufficient. And that's exactly what all of us want in this new year. We want a year ahead full of promise where we can get back to doing everything the way that we want to do it and making up for lost time. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not recognized, acknowledged 
their inability to earn your favor, to earn your love, to do enough, Lord. I pray that this morning what they would hear above all else is not the words, try harder, work harder. This can be the year where you finally do it. Lord, would anyone here who sees it that way see here and now, right now, that you are a God who saves those who are dying, Father? And would they cry out to you now and pray these very words, Father, I know that without you, I only can experience death. I know that all of my strength and all of my intellect and all the things that I try to offer and do, uh, that, that these things are not what you want. Father, I repent of my efforts to be enough on my own, to be self-sufficient without you, to try to be like you. And God, I long to be with you. God, would you forgive me of that? Would you turn me towards you? Would you fill me with your love? Would you forgive me? And in the freedom of those things, meet me in this low place and would you lift me up? Father, we worship you now, we proclaim you now, and we lift your name up because you are the God who brought us out of the pit, who put a new song in our mouth. Amen.